Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Wild Voices Project podcast with me, Matt Williams. I hope you're enjoying some time outdoors, some time in nature, some time witnessing wildlife at the moment. Today's conversation is with Diogo Verissimo. You can find out more about him at www.diogoverissimo.com. That's D-I-O-G-O-V-E-R-I-S-S-I-M-O.com. And at Verissimo Diogo, so that's V-E-R-I-S-S-I-M-O-D-I-O-G-O on Twitter. Diogo is a social scientist focusing on how marketing and insights into human behavior can help us to tackle conservation issues, particularly human-wildlife conflict and the illegal trade in wildlife. He's an Oxford Martin Fellow, part of the Oxford Martin Programme on the Illegal Wildlife Trade at the University of Oxford in the UK. And in 2016, he was given the Young Professional Award by the International Union for the Conservation of Nature's Commission for Education and Communication. And in 2017, he received the Early Career Conservationist Award from the Society for Conservation Biology. In this, conservation, in this conversation, Diogo tells us how tripping over a fossil was how he stumbled into an interest in the natural world at an early age. And he tells us how he realised that conservation is fundamentally dependent on human actions and interactions with the natural world. Diogo also explains how social science, social marketing and influencing human behaviour can help us to protect wildlife, creating incentives rather than imposing rules, regulations and legislation. This marketing can take the form of charismatic species, umbrella species that are particularly appealing but which can help to protect others that are linked to them as well. Diogo also tells us about the lost and found project that he founded, telling the stories of species previously thought to have gone extinct, but since rediscovered. And he also tells us about the Twitter account and Facebook page he set up for I Fucking Love Biodiversity, which have become hugely popular. As usual, the Wild Voices Project podcast tells the stories of the people saving nature. You can find us online at wildvoicesproject.org and at wildvoicesproj on Twitter. And you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. And we're part of Wild Voices Media, a global project bridging emerging storytellers with aspiring environmental professionals that you can learn more about at wild-voices.org. Now, let's dive in. Diogo, thanks very much. Welcome to the Wild Voices Project podcast. Um, Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, I'm going to start where I always start, which is by asking where your interest in the environment, wildlife, uh, nature came from in the first place, if you can remember. Well, so I think I think I have a the story I usually tell, at least, is a pretty sort of familiar story to, I guess, a lot of the people who are involved in, in conservation in that um I, I started having interest in animals when I was relatively young. Um, and so my family comes from the countryside, and so we did spend a lot of time outdoors, although uh, I 
I most, spent most of my time in my youth in, in a city, Lisbon, Portugal. That's that's where I was born. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I guess it's a pretty traditional story in that in that sense. Um, I will say that the the first thing that really got me excited um, about animals were actually dead animals in the sense that they were dinosaurs. Hmm. Um, so that was really the first sort of thing that I really got into when I was when I was a kid. Um, and even you know throughout almost until I got to college or university, I guess uh, uh, it was it was was one of the things I wanted to do was to be a paleontologist. Hmm. And so I guess in you know in 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 and that sort of over time merged into this sort of or, or evolved into this idea that um, yeah I know studying dinosaurs is really nice and it's great and it's what a fascinating subject but what if what if I could look at animals that actually are living you know still living animals um, which for one are much easier to study um, but also you know just uh, you know just as fascinating just as diverse just as uh, uh, exciting and so I guess that's sort of the natural that was sort of the the, 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 the evolution that happened during my, I guess, undergraduate years. Um, and that actually then <laughs> evolved even further uh, from dinosaurs to living animals, then from animal, non-human animals to human animals, um, where I you know, more and more realized as I was going around and uh, um, looking at places where conservation takes place, um, realizing that in, in the end, it's uh, it doesn't really matter if there's... Uh, if you have, um, you know, 70 monkeys or 90 monkeys, it uh, does matter how many people are killing or how many, what conflict there is between um, populations and, and, and those monkeys in those particular, in that particular area. Or in essence, it boils down to uh, how people interact with, um, with natural resources and with animals and plants and, and the natural world. That's really what's going to dictate um, how well they're going to do and how, if we're going to be able to... Uh, to conserve those uh, those species or not yeah absolutely well that's um i really want to come on to all that because i know that's the focus of your studies and your work and your research <laughs> and one of your passions i just want to mm-hmm. um ask though about your your interest in dinosaurs it's in, it's interesting that you mentioned that because i was chatting to louis psihoyos who's the director of the cove and of racing extinction and of a new film that's coming out in a few months called the game changers and he said that there was a stage where he got really obsessed with with dinosaurs and it really helped him to understand the previous mass extinctions that had happened on the earth and therefore to understand the mass extinction that that we're going through now i was wondering if you've got any reflections on that and also secondly if there's a particularly strong memory you have from childhood of finding a fossil or reading something amazing about dinosaurs that just really captured your interest or spellbound you yeah, so uh, so it's interesting you say that because I do have a story just like that. <laughs> Excellent. So yeah, so um, okay, so the first first half of the question. Um, so I, I, in terms of the connection with dinosaurs themselves, I'm afraid it was not as sort of exciting and um, complex as that. I mean, for me, as I was growing up, it was just the sheer sort of diversity and the, you know, the, the, the sort of unknown uncertainty sort of dimension of it, right? So how much we know about the dinosaurs and so much, how much we continue to learn about them, but also how much we don't know, right? How yeah. much, how possible it is for us to have major, you know, a major discovery still, right? This whole idea of dinosaurs, a lot of species had feathers, right? This major, that completely changes the way we look at, at, at these animals that we've been 
thinking about it for so long. And so these types of things are still possible. And so I guess there was a little bit that, of, of that that really got me sort of, that really enticed me and I really thought, wow, you know, this is really an amazing, an amazing field. Um, I do have a, a story, which is, um, so, you know, I mentioned that my family was from the countryside. And so Christmas was always a time where we went back to this this particular tiny village in the middle of Portugal. It's about 500 people. And, you know, when you live in a village of 500 people and you need a Christmas tree, uh, what you do is you go out into, you know, the, the woods and you just, you know, if, if this is your property, um, and you just go and you chop a tree that, lick, that looks vaguely the size that you would ha- like to have in your living room. Mm-hmm. I in Portugal, there's lots of pine forests. And so uh, you just go out and you chop a tree. And so that's what I was doing in a, when I was maybe 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 12, 12 years old or something. So I went out with uh, my, my dad, I think at the time, looking for a tree that was about the right size, mm. you know, and, and sort of, you know, the, you know we, we do have these, these stereotypes as to what a Christmas tree should look like. Um, and, and it just so happened that um, I, I tripped and fell uh, <laughs> um, on a fossil, on, on a relatively big uh, fossil of uh, what looks like a, uh, crustacean. Um, so you literally fell into your interest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and it was quite remarkable because it was, it was pretty big. I mean, it was maybe the size of my fist at the time. And so it was, it was something that, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, difficult to, 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 to see with the naked mm. eye or anything like that. You could really, you could really, and, and it also was really, um, just aesthetically was, you know, they had no imperfections. It was very in very good condition, which meant that you could, you know, it's not, I guess sometimes with, depending on how the process goes, um, sometimes, you know, the reality is that you have to make, you have to sort of, there's, there's a part of it that's your, your imagination as to how, how is this an animal, right? But in that case, no, it was very clearly that was an animal that had turned into stone, uh, you know, uh, and so that was quite, uh, and the fact that I had discovered it just like that, it did have quite a big impact in me, I think, at the time. Um, just, you know, with the connection of that, of that, oh, wow, you know, anyone, anywhere, right, in a place that was really familiar to me, you can discover, um, you can discover something like this. But also, you know, it made me think, of course, you know, this was an aquatic animal. And so this, the place that I was standing in at that particular moment had, of course, been somewhere completely different, right? If you go back a few geological eras, this clearly had been completely different than it is now. Mm-hmm. And I think that also, um, that also had a big impact in me, of how, how, how you can become so familiar with the place. And yet, of course, you know, over the course of time, um, that's almost, you know, uh, I guess an amount of time that's almost impossible or difficult to, to grasp for us humans because we have pretty short sort of lifespans. Um, you know, things can change so immensely. And, and so I think that made me feel pretty small, which I think it's, it's only fair given that humans are not that, I guess, big of a deal in the, if you think about the geological history of the planet. Mm. Um, and so you said that when you were doing your underground studies, this interest evolved into an interest in living animals and then later non-human animals to human animals. What, what was it that you studied for your undergrad? Yeah, so I did environmental biology, and this was at the uh, University of Lisbon. It's uh, it was a very nice program, but it was very it's very traditional biology, right? Even if you do, if you have interest in uh, natural resource management or conservation, it's still very focused on um, the non-human sort of uh, 
part of it. So, you know, uh, understanding uh, bird ecology or uh, mammal ecology or um, how species distributions come to be or um, genetics, uh, population genetics, um, population ecology, you know, those very type um, animal and plant, mostly animal and plant based type uh, subjects where you try to understand the natural world beyond you know or, or excluding uh people um and so that was most of my of my most of my learning was directed towards that and so initially you know of course i was really you know excited because it's it's really about learning about the natural world and the uh, the diversity of forms that life can take which you know is quite a really cool thing mm. um but at the same time then you go you go into um you go into places where um where this diversity of life is, you know, like the tropics or other 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 places, um, and you start seeing that, of course, you know, keeping and conserving this this diversity of life um, is is not an easy thing, and there's all these pressures coming into coming into play, and of course, people's livelihoods come into play and so there's some pretty difficult decisions need to be made, and and these decisions are made by people and are usually about people. And so I started uh, slowly, um, slowly realizing that um, it, it, at the end of the day, it is all about the choices people make. That's the bottom line. The bottom line is all of us collectively as a species every day make decisions about our lifestyles, about um, you know, about a number of things, um, including how how the the way we vote, the way we influence our peers, the way we relate to others in our um, communities and all those choices that we make dictate all of these outcomes. Um, it, it's 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 not really um, yes it, yes it is important to understand you know the ecology of the gorilla and the elephant and all of that and how elephants uh, the dynamics of population ele- of, of the populations of elephants or or any other you know interesting species out there. But at the end of the day, it's all going to come down to. The choices that people and these people might be local communities, they might be um, policymakers, they might be um, consumers uh, in in you know in other parts of the world, or uh, it all boils down to the decisions those people make. Um, that's what's going to dictate if we're going to have elephants in a hundred years or not. Um, and so, so I so that made me shift my I guess gears a little bit and um, move much more into the social sciences and and studying. And learning about people. And I, I'm going to adapt one of my questions slightly. So I was just going to ask whether or not there was a particularly special wildlife experience or a place that you went to during mm-hmm. that time. But actually, what I what I think I want to ask is: was there a particular experience or encounter that you had, or a place that you went that illustrated to you and and helped you to realise that human wildlife relationships and conflicts were the the kind of key as you've said um so sadly i i i can't put my finger on a single defining moment but i can tell you there was one experience that i feel brought a lot of things home and that was when i was so i I did this um this tropical biology course um through the Tropical Biology Association (TBA) it has a headquarters in, in Cambridge, and they have these courses where basically they join um, uh, groups of European and African early career researchers in a national park, and they they, they have these courses in, in Uganda, Tanzania, Madagascar, and a bunch of different places. The one I did was in Kibale National Park in Uganda, 
And it was the first time that I was traveling outside of Europe by myself, which I think was also contributed to the fact of making the experience more you know, exciting in one hand. But the other hand, it was really, uh, I, I think we did, we, 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 by going around the national park, having a sense of the people that lived around the national park, the types of activities that were ongoing, uh, what conservation was like um, in places like that. Um, and at the same time, uh, I guess drawing some parallels with with the experiences that I've had. You know, as I mentioned, I come from a, a rural you know background, and 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 some of these things are really not. I mean, some of the things that were happening there they're not different from things that I, I've seen my grandfather do. And, you know, and I'll give you an example. So you know, we have crop rating, right? And and in, in Kivale, you know, one of big emphasis is primates. They have high diversity of primates. They're a world-class place for the study of chimpanzees, right? And of course, there is crop rating by chimpanzees, by other, other primates. Um, and this is not different from the issues that, for example, my own grandfather had, had with foxes, with wolves, for example, yeah. or, or the stories that he, the stories my grandfather would tell about his grandfather having problems with wolves, right? And they would kill foxes, they would kill these animals in defense of their own livestock. And so... I of course when when these stories relate to you by a grandfather it doesn't it's it's harder to sort of <laughs> frame this into sort of much more like a formal context of human wildlife conflict and so you know you sort of it it sort of I don't know I guess it's sort of much it's so familiar that it, it's difficult to sort of I, I at least I had problems sort of framing it like that mm-hmm. but I went to Kivali and had that experience and sort of understood how how what actually what conservation is actually made of on one hand, but at the other the other side um, also um, realize that these challenges are really um, really common and they happen in a lot of places and they're not in any way specific or unique to Kibale to into Uganda but they're really common in almost any context that um, people in nature where people in nature um, coexist. And so maybe just to try and extrapolate that a bit further, the fact that these experiences are common between different places and different groups of people, does that help us in some way when we're thinking about tackling them, addressing them, or help, mm-hmm. helping mm-hmm. people to um, think about them in different ways? Well, I guess, I guess yes or no. Which is not, I know it's not a very good answer, but but I I I would say that um, one the, the thing I took home from that from that experience was that um, it was really important. And and by that I mean, if these processes or these interactions and these difficulties and obstacles and um, you know, challenges we have to overcome are present everywhere, right? They're not, they're not anything, they're not a thing that only people who care about conservation of biodiversity in Uganda or only people yeah. who have care about conservation of biodiversity in Portugal have to worry about. It means that if you sum all the parts together, that these are big, challenges and barriers we have to overcome in order to get people and biodiversity to coexist in, in a way that um, that is balanced. Um, and so that, that was the takeaway home that I got from, from, from that experience. And, 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 and yeah, so, so, so from that, from that um, side of things, I would say, yeah, it, it, it does help us to sort of put things in perspective in a way. Um, but at the same time, it, it is important to realize, and this is something that um, sort of segues uh, into my field of research and my interest in marketing, that we also have to admit that and 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 be clear that um, things things differ 
enormously between um, countries, between regions, between um, different groups, even in the same place. And so um, it, it is often the case that we'll have to adapt quite heavily to the circumstances in the social context and the cultural context and um, of, of a particular of a particular population or a particular region or a particular issue. Yeah, so you've you've segued me beautifully into what was going to be my next question, but actually I'm going to put one in in first, which is I was just wondering if you could kind of sketch out for people what the level of Im- what the level or type of impact that the trade in wildlife products, human direct human wildlife conflict is having on biodiversity, and I suppose I mean as opposed to things like agricultural intensification which might impact Mm. biodiversity but isn't a direct head-on conflict between humans and animals Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well so that that's a really difficult question um so i would say that um i would say that it's it's important to recognize that to a great extent habitat loss and and conversion of land conversion to uh, for for agriculture and other 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 purposes is maybe the biggest challenge that we face mm. when it comes to um maintaining biodiversity conserving biodiversity now i th- i think that's probably true if you think about biodiversity as a whole it's just a whole um package i'd say but of course, uh, the reality is that um, just because of uh, who we are and uh, uh, in terms of t- uh, humans as social social and biologically as as animals as well, we don't care equally about everything. But not, not all pieces of the biodiversity puzzle are the same in terms of yeah. our concern. We're just yeah. concerned about some things more than others. And when it comes to the things we're the most concerned about um, – then the wildlife trade very often will have large impacts. When you think about things like birds, um, for example, Indonesia, the songbird trade is recently becoming as a as a as, as a has become a highlighted as a potential big threat. Of course, you have the the those sort of almost almost the flagship species for um, wildlife trade, things like rhinos with rhino horn, mm-hmm. elephants with ivory. And so for those species, yeah, the, the, those species that are very, very high value and selectively um, uh, illegally traded, those for those species, yes, the wildlife trade can, can be a, a very, a very important threat and something that we, we need to, uh, to, be, uh, to be aware of and to, to mitigate to the best of our ability. Um, okay, so that that nicely kind of I suppose sketches out the terrain, and then as you've you've already said, you've you've done a lot of my heavy lifting for me with moving on to my next question, <laughs> um, which is always nice when when the person you're talking to does that. So marketing is one of the social marketing is one of the key interests and um, one of the things that you study in its role in conservation. So I was wondering if you might be able to illustrate for people who are listening what role for you social marketing plays and maybe you can do that through through an example and before before coming on skype i was having a read through your work on sea turtles in portuguese speaking oh, countries uh, maybe yes. that's a good example to talk through or maybe there's a different mm-hmm. one that springs to mind for you yeah yeah so i can 
I'll do it as a two-part answer, I guess. So I'll, I'll start yeah. with saying that, um, so I guess differentiating a little bit uh, social marketing from different types of um, behavior change approaches, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if we recognize that the, the choices that people make um, are the key thing we need to worry about when it comes to conserving biodiversity on Earth, then we can think about it, we, we can go about it in, in different ways in terms of ensuring that those choices are as we can, we can limit, mitigate the damage that those choices make. Um, so uh, one, one way, for example, one, one more traditional way has been, for example, regulation, laws, right? So in every country, there are certain behaviors that are forbidden by law. People cannot perform those behaviors. Murder, for example. Right, so that's an example of a behavior that is outlawed. It's not there's regulation in place that says you cannot behave like this. Another least extreme example, less extreme example would be, um, say, fly tipping or uh, polluting. Say, for example, in many countries there are there's regulation against polluting, so you can't just yeah. dump chemicals and whatever you want um, because that's there's some regulation against that. So that's one way of sort of um, trying to mitigate. The damage that choices that people the, the, of our choices to the environment. That's one 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 route. The other route, which has been also pretty traditional, is education. And so what that entails is you provide information um, to the person um, and to enable them to make the best decisions possible, right? So to enable them to make knowingly knowingly make the decisions that they feel are in the best interest in the best interest of um, of, of the group potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the other route. And I guess social marketing is, um, and, and those, th- those are sort of, I guess, what I would just like to say is those are sort of two, two, two extremes, right? So one, on one end, um, law enforcement and uh, regulation is uh, mandatory, right? So you, there's no optionality involved in fulfilling the law. If it's law, you have to, to obey it. And then you have education, which in essence is just making you aware of the consequences and the potential issues of different making different options, right? But you're completely free to choose to jaywalk or you know, well, jaywalking if it's forbidden, no, you're not. But <laughs> it um, depends on the country. It depends on the country. There, there's yeah. another there's another one as well, which I suppose is a form of regulation, but that's mm-hmm. declaring protected areas no go zones, which is saying let's just remove try and remove people from the equation altogether, right? As well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So that's a, that would be a form of regulation, right? So you'd basically yeah. say. You know, in this, in this, let's say with MPAs, for example, no fishing uh, areas, right? So it's not you're not allowed to fish, right? So that's mm. that. What that would be one, one, one option. So I mean, and, and just to segue into your sea turtle example. So in that case, uh, for example, I'll give you the uh, the case of Santo Me and Principe, which is a tiny island country in the Gulf of Guinea, West Africa. Um, they started with the education, and they started with telling people that um, you know sea turtles had. Um, potential. They were they were threatened. That they had been. They were part of the natural heritage of Saint Domingue Principe, and giving them a little bit more of information about their ecology, uh, how the only the females came to the beach to nest, and the males stayed out at sea, and a little bit just talking about them, right? So that was sort of the education part. Um, and then they went on with enforcement uh, or the or the regulation and and law enforcement, which was to make the consumption and trade of sea turtle meat and eggs illegal, right? So in that case, there was no longer optional. There was no longer any, uh, the, the individual was not free to make a choice. It was, the state was making a choice and saying this, this behavior is no longer acceptable. 
right? Um, but of course, um, the, the trouble that um, often law enforcement has is that, um, or, or regulation has better said, is that of course, a- any law is only as good as uh, the enforcement that it has behind it, right? And uh, there are many challenges of governance uh, and, and this is true in, in the UK and in Portugal, but it's even more true in developing countries. And so uh, often it is the case that um, just like with the, 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 no, the no fishing areas or the, or the fully protected areas that you just mentioned, you have paper parks. Right? So, so mm-hmm. regulation that only exists in paper that when you go to the field, uh, actually there's, there's no consequence of that regulation existing. And so, and this was, this was a little bit the case uh, there as well, where there was a law, but um, uh, there, there was the, the risk of being caught was quite small. The, um, the, the, the penalty was likely not going to be um, applied anyway. Uh, and so, and so, really, was was not something that was uh, that was going to make a, a, a lot of a lot of impact in terms of the choices that people make. Once again, and so we decided to go down the the social marketing route. And so this is, um, uh, and, and so this is a project that we've now been working on for about two years. And uh, it's it's, and we we're still gonna we're still waiting for the results of the final. Um, data collection sort of season to have a, a more concrete ex- a more concrete sense of what the impact was but we, in terms of the numbers just the numbers of turtles that we've that they've been detected as captured on the beach um, we can see a pretty strong pretty strong reduction and so that that that's a pretty good indicator um, to start with that that uh, we've moved the needle somewhat at least and so in that case what we've done was we try to focus a lot more on um, thinking about this, and this is a thing that marketing is pretty good at, thinking about this as an exchange, right? So not so much, um, and I think as in conservation, we do this very well. We think about what other people can do for us, right? What, you know, stop eating this turtle, stop mm. killing this animal, stop going into this place, stop cutting down this tree, right? We, 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 it's very easy for us to ask of other people to do things, to do something, to say, uh, what you can do for me. Um, so because we are interested in nature, so we need other people to help us out in our in what we think is important. But I think we're less good at um, the, the flip side of that, which is why would other people comply with our request and help us out? What's in it for them? What do they have to gain from not chopping down this tree, not eating this turtle, uh, not killing this animal? Um, and so this doesn't necessarily need to be always tangible benefits. It doesn't need to be money. It doesn't need to be, you know, anything that's sort of tangible. It, it really varies with, um, with, um, with a case, right? With this, with a particular situation that you're in, uh, in this case, in particular, we decided to, um, really sort of emphasize the, the life traits of, of, of the sea turtle and how it, merged with sort of a lot of aspects of the livelihoods of the the communities that where people most often consume them which are the coastal communities as you as you would imagine right so most of the people that capture sea turtles are fishermen because they spend most time in the sea most time at the beach um and so that's what we focused on so we had this we had this long sort of series of um uh, sort of a two-year social marketing campaign where we rebranded the sea turtle the mother of the sea sort of emphasized the fact that um a lot of the times people have contact with sea turtles when they um come to to the beach to nest and those of course are only females right um and so sort of have this sort of 
different angle to explore and reframe it uh, in a different way. And then, of course, use a series of um, activities around around sea turtles and and uh, and sort of their their uh, their value that value in in non-consumptive value, I guess, um, to to uh, to highlight how 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 living. Oh, oh, having those turtles as as living as opposed to dead could be could be interesting and beneficial. So we used a series of social influencers like uh, musicians, for example, um, to sort of have disseminate these this. We had a couple of messages that were all framed under the same banner of the same campaign, um, uh, and and really tried to change the way that I guess the sea turtle was perceived uh, in the country. We also, of course, have the advantage of it being a relatively small country. Um, and so there, there are some advantages to that uh, in terms of, for example, being able to contact influencers. Uh, we used um, street theater groups, uh, musicians, as already yeah. mentioned. We had um, uh, cooking competitions. We had um, just a number of uh, events. Uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I, oh, I always say, and, and actually I should, I should open a brackets here to say when I say we, um, the big, big credit to to uh, the, this intervention goes to to the NGO on the ground that's doing this, and that's um, uh, ATM, uh, which is a Portuguese NGO who's working with Marapa, uh, which is a Santomean NGO. So they they the credit goes to, to to them. I was only the sort of a more of a technical advisor, um, helping them uh, set up these activities and and uh, and sort of steering sort of the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um- and you've already hinted at this a little bit, for example, by saying that it's a fairly small, fairly small country. But could you distill down maybe what were the criteria or the qualities that made this place and this species a good candidate for trying out these techniques, as opposed to the probably hundreds or thousands of other species and places where you could have chosen to try to apply this? Yeah, so I, it's a very, very good question. Um, so I wish I really had uh, this big master plan that I could tell you, no, we've <laughs> did this exhaustive analysis and we've decided that this was a priority species. You know, sadly, it was, it's a lot less um, data-driven than that. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the complete honest answer to that question is that um, I've always had an interest in um, Portuguese-speaking countries and, and their biodiversity. I worked before in Mozambique and in Brazil, and so I was very interested in working in Santo Um And I spent two years as the manager, or 18 months as a as the manager of a sea turtle project in in Costa Rica. And so I had a interest in sea turtles, um, and 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 that was that that was the extent to which this was planned. Um, so there wasn't <laughs> there wasn't really a, a you know a, a master plan behind it. it was Mostly my personal interest, and then the opportunity presented itself with ATM being interested in trying out these new these new techniques and uh, this new sort of way of engaging people. Um, and and you know and, and I have to say that I'm I, th- I think they did a really really great job, and I'm I'm looking forward to uh, to this uh, the final data collection so we can have some sense of what uh, what the potential impacts of this particular you know effort have been. No, I think I think that's a good answer because um, I suppose I probably should have been a bit more specific. It's not necessarily just the scientific criteria, but it's really interesting to hear what your personal criteria were for choosing a particular project. And it's it's kind of answering a question that I want to ask later mm-hmm. on about how you how you filter the various offers or possibilities that come your way. But I think that's really good to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, so the next question, 
um, let's see whether or not this works as a question, because I wrote it down a few weeks ago <laughs> when we were first going to speak, and I can't quite remember the background of why I wrote it down, and I think it was one of your <laughs> blogs, but let's see whether or not it makes any sense. So you're clearly a firm believer in the power of social marketing, but to me, in reading some of your blogs, there was something a bit more fundamental, which is to say that you... Uh, would it be fair to say that you think that sometimes putting too much of an emphasis on moral or ethical considerations can sometimes distract or misguide us from efficient or effective conservation solutions? And that's not to say that we should act immorally or unethically, but just that sometimes putting too much emphasis on those things can be um, can get in the way of something that might actually make a difference. Well... Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's a difficult question to answer in general, right, in general yeah. terms. Um, I would just say that I think we'll just need to be a little careful in terms of whose moral are we uh, according, are we acting according to, right? So I, that, that would be the only thing that I would, that I would say. Uh, I would say that, um, um, you know, often, often we, we should be aware of the fact that there are multiple perspectives, on, on an issue um, and I think often conservation as conservationists we are a little bit um, we are often in a position where we um, are talking about um, resources and species and areas and that are outside um, so that, that are in other countries and other parts of the globe uh, and that means that we—it's easy for us to be a little bit detached of the realities of those places. Um, so I think it's it's important to just to, to bear those sort of practicalities in mind, right? If we if we are talking about, uh, I mean, I don't know. I'll give you an example: rhinos in South Africa, right? Uh, I think it, it is important to recognize that the, the people of South Africa, in 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 in, ultimately have a say about what goes on with rhinos in South Africa rather than um, you know having situa a situation where you have uh, someone from the outside dictating what should happen uh, with 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 those uh, with those species just in the same way just in the same way that um, I don't think anyone in the UK would would see with uh, I don't think anyone would would, would, would accept um, someone from you know Zambia coming over and saying this is you know regarding the badgical this is what you should be doing. This is the way you should be managing your your deer in Scotland. This is the right. So that that would certainly, I think, that would not be well received. Um, and so I think that sort of that logic goes goes both both ways. Yes. Um, well done. I think I think that was I think that was what I was getting at with the question. You've refreshed my memory, and I think it was those differing moral <laughs> perspectives that you can bring to a situation or to a question or to a challenge. And sometimes you've got to remember that you might be bringing your own set of morals or just perspectives but they might be completely different to the to the person or the people or the situation that you're that you're bringing those to the table of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so one another thing that i found really interesting is a concept in your blogs um which obviously i would really recommend people go and have a read of and i'll put a link in the in the show notes for the episode is the concept of a flagship species and i was wondering if you could uh, say yeah. a little bit about what they are and how they can be helpful or maybe misleading or unhelpful in some situations mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, so I mean that's uh, in essence. I've, I spent a lot of time during my PhD thinking about flagship species, and you know, flagship species are basically just those species that we use to uh, promote conservation. Um, so this might be. It could be a range of things. It could be um, promote conservation as in get people to change their behavior. It could be um, re- regarding a particular issue. So it might be a community-based um, a community-based uh, type of conservation campaign where you're getting – let's imagine you might, might be in a situation where you want um, – uh, you're trying to influence a particular community to um, manage a resource in a particular way. Let's, for example, let's say if you're a – in a coastal community, maybe you want to try to influence the fishermen and the gear that they use because one particular gear might be more destructive or say, for example, one good example would be cyanide fishing or dynamite fishing, right? You might want to be in a position where you say, oh, look, you know, it would be really beneficial in the long term for the community if dynamite fishing stopped, if cyanide fishing stopped, right? So a, a, a flagship species might be one species that you use to try to help you convey that message because, of course, Often species are important and intertwined with the history of communities, of, of human communities, and so they have a pretty important cultural role. Um, in, 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 I guess in the UK, for example, a good example would be um, the wolf, for example, right? So the UK, uh, I, I've, I've read somewhere, and, and I, I'm hope, I hope I'm not getting this very, very, very wrong, but I, I heard that the, I read somewhere that the, the UK hasn't had wolves in hundreds of years, but has five wolf conservation charities. <laughs> yeah, that sounds probably true. I think we do yeah. have some charities, but we definitely don't have any wolves. Yeah, so you know, so I think that's an interesting example of, of a situation where, of course, you know, for for there to be enough interest in a species that for there to be several organizations only focused on its conservation, but for it no, never actually to actually not occur in the country. I think that sort of exposes this sort of dichotomy between what is interesting, what is what people are interested about and, and excited about, um, uh, and, 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 and I guess what people are not. Um, so so that, that would be a good example of, of, of what, what a flagship species would be. Um, so it's, it's just a species that's used in the context of a marketing, a conservation marketing effort. Um, to try to promote conservation, a uh, conservation objective. And how can they sometimes be useful as a kind of umbrella for benefiting lots of other species? Mm. So I think you know. So that's actually that's a really good question because uh, I I wanna even in the literature and in the scientific literature often we have this people have this tendency to sort of say well uh, you know flagship species are the ones that if we if if you if we if people support that species, then um, a lot of other species will will also benefit from it because they exist in the same places. But I want to make it really clear that benefits in the case of flagship species don't necessarily just accrue through you know existing in the same places, and that's a, a different concept as you as you mentioned. That's an umbrella species, and that's something quite different in the sense that an umbrella species is an ecological concept. Right? It's just about species distribution. Does this species occur in places where these other species occur? That's an umbrella species, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Where a flagship is slightly different in the sense that there are many mechanisms through which um, flagship species can benefit other species. And I'll give you an example. Even when they don't co-occur. So one example is a protected area, right? For example. So you might have situations where in a protected area, one species never co-occurs. One species is all to the left, the other species is all to the right, right? But because the protected area is one single entity, when you use uh, the flagship to attract people to the protected area, 
visitors go in, they pay their ticket, their fee to enter, the protected area gets more funding, and so everyone benefits, even if the species never actually co-occurs with the other, right? Mm-hmm. That would be one one way. Um, other ways might be through, um, for example, another example from Uganda is, so gorillas finance the entire protected area of Uganda, protected yeah. area system, right? And so those in those cases, gorillas are very clearly flagships for conservation in Uganda, but they don't occur in every protected area. They just have, it's just so that the Uganda Wildlife Administration has uh, a mechanism in place for benefit sharing that allows um, those those gorillas to generate the income that benefits all these different species and wildlife, right? Even if they don't co-occur. So in that case, I want to highlight just how different uh, the umbrella species concept is from the flagship sort of concept. Mm. Okay, good. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit now and leave enough time to talk about some things that I know I know you're quite passionate about and you definitely wanted to make sure we covered. So I was wondering uh-huh. first if you could tell us what the Lost and Found project is. Uh-huh. Well, yes, thank you for, for asking that. I, I am quite passionate about it. So um, the Lost and Found project is a project um, that hopes to tell the stories of species that were thought extinct but were eventually rediscovered. So these are species that we thought we had lost forever. And, but actually, luckily, they're still amongst us. And so my next question was just going to be as simple as what are one of the one or two of the most amazing lost and found stories that are featured on the <laughs> website. But actually, I think I want to ask, uh, I'm, ho- I'm hoping that this is the case. Are there any of the lost and found species that you've had the chance to encounter in the wild yourself? Wow, that's a very good question. Let me I'm going to have to go through and check actually <laughs> right now uh and see if that has been the case. Um let me see. Um that's a very good question and one I had not been asked before. Um So, I believe if not, we can revert to my original question. But if you've encountered one of them, it would be great to hear that story. So I've had, um, I have, I actually have to go quickly and check if the Takahe species are separate or not. Bear with me. <laughs> no, um, that's fine. Um, and so I, there's, there's, there's one. I do have one connection to one. There's definitely one. Um, one species that I have had a connection with, even if I haven't actually seen it, uh, and that species is the um, uh, it's the um, red crested tree rat. So the red crested tree rat was discovered a few years back by two volunteers in um, this one particular reserve in in Sierra Nevada Santa Marta in. Colombia. This is discovered or rediscovered? Uh, rediscovered, you're right, right. sorry. Um, you're right. was rediscovered after 100-something years um, by these two volunteers in this reserve. The reserve is called El Dorado, and it's managed by a, a Colombian uh, bird conservation charity. Um, and, and, oh yeah, so that was 113 years, exactly. And, and, and I was able... And I was lucky enough to be in the region for a conference uh, last year. Um, and so I, I went to the exact same reserve. And it was really nice to be able to um, talk to a few researchers who uh, who are looking for tree-dwelling animals in the same region 
And, and of course, with a, they're very, very hopeful that at, at some point they might be able to detect. They're doing climate trapping up in the trees and everything, and they're really hoping to uh, be able to detect some red-crested tree rats, although they haven't yet. And so that's actually one of the blog posts that we have um, in, the, in the blog section of the website is uh, w- one of the researchers talked about, you know, what, what is it like to to search for something that's so elusive, right? Um, and so although I didn't see it, uh, it was really interesting because so that, that that particular story was that there was one particular individual of the red crested tree rat that went up to the lodge and basically spent 20 minutes in one of the railings, um, just walking back and forth. <laughs> and so, you know, initially initially it, it made quite a lot of noise and so the two volunteers were inside watching a movie and they sort of heard the noise and eventually came out and saw this big rat standing there they thought it was quite it was a sort of a funny looking animal they haven't seen before and but he's, it, the, the animals just the, the rats did that for so long that they took went back they took their cameras they came back they took some photos they sort of got bored of taking photos and then he just vanished again right um and so you know, it's quite a you know, it's quite a sort of a interesting sort of interesting story, and and it, at the same time, it it <laughs> it is possible to be very precise about where the animal was seen, right? Because it was right there, and so it was it was I guess it was interesting at that point. We already had the story published in the website and all of that, um, and and so it was it was really interesting to go back to the exact place where the species was seen, um, and to have you know to I guess to sort of it's almost a little a little to a certain extent sort of relive the that experience a little bit mm. and more broadly what's the philosophy behind lost and found and why why was it a project that you decided to set up i think you were the one who yeah. set it up right yeah 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 i did so this was this was sort of came came with this idea that um you know there's something tremendously sort of there's a there's, i think there's a powerful emotional connection to be made with this idea of something that we thought was lost forever and that we then rediscover, right? So, you know, of course, every single species is a unique, you know, entity, unlike uh, any other that's ever existed on our planet. Um, when a species disappears, we lose that, and we'll we won't get it back. Um, but for some of these species, uh, we thought we had lost them, and they subsequently have been found again. And I think that's something about. I mean, I think humans are naturally loss averse. We don't we don't like losing things we already have. Uh, in fact, we 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 care a lot more about losing something than we care about gaining something that's equally as good. Um, and and so I you know I remember when I was uh, relatively young looking and you know, reading through, um, for example, uh, uh, Tasmanian tiger. For example, that's a species that for for decades um, or for now, not a century, but but getting close to it, people have talked about. Oh, is it? Is it could it could it still be alive? Could it, could we still have some, and then now and then people talk about sight. There's sightings, and someone says, "Oh, I seen it." And they get some blurry photos, or some shaky videos. Um, and I remember that that was quite powerful, you know, uh, when I was when I was young and, and sort of thinking, "Wow, you know, maybe the, the species is still there. Maybe maybe we'll still find it someday." And so I thought, you know, why not? Why not try to why not try to collate those stories, right, in a way that's more accessible and more convenient to, to, for for the for the public. Um, and so that's where the lost and found sort of um, story came from, or the lost and found project came from. And and basically now, so right now we have about um, twenty stories. We're working on more more plant stories this in this 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 time because we only have animals for now. But we're going to have five more plant stories in the, I'm hoping next month or so. 
Um, so that would be that would be I think quite exciting. Um, and of course now we we're also hoping to um, sort of bring the sort of a new a new a new stage of, of this project is to uh, try to get the stories in in video format. So right now we have them in uh, written format and we also have them as comics. Um, but we're hoping to get them as video as well to make them you know to make them exciting and interesting to an even broader audience. But that of course has has some costs, and so we've been trying to see how we can uh, how we can uh, best um, make that happen. Mm, cool. Okay. And uh, again, you've done some heavy lifting with my next question for me. So uh, emotional connection is something that's really important. And we've talked quite abstractly about about theory and about social marketing. But are there any particularly powerful wildlife encounters or moments that you've had? Um, I'm sure actually it's going to be hard to choose because I know when people ask me the same question, I find it hard to, <laughs> hard to pick just one. But are there yeah. any that stand out for you? And I know you've, for example, you've written a piece for Tales from the Bush for BBC Wildlife magazine. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's that one or maybe it's something else. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very good question. I... Um, hmm. So I'm not going to try to pick the most exciting one. No. I'm, yeah. gonna, I'm just going to pick the most recent one, which yeah. is a much easier task. <laughs> that's, a, uh, so that's an easier filter, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm going to go because I mean, quite honestly, I mean, I've been, I've been pretty fortunate, you know. I, I, I do have, you know, maybe a handful or two hands full of, I think, encounters that have really been quite special for me. But I'll give you the most recent one. So just uh, this was like two weeks ago. Um, and two weeks ago, um, there was this conference in, in Finland. So my wife and I, we went up to Lapland um, just to, to have a – because we were curious about the region, the ecology of the region, but also because we wanted to um, know more about the, the human cultural sort of landscape there because um, they – um, it's it's the region where the historically Sami uh, the Sami people have inhabited, and so we were curious about all the sort of socio-economic and cultural and ecological sort of landscape, um, and so we went up there. And uh, one of the things that I saw was a uh, uh, Siberian jay, which is I guess not that spectacular if you think about it. It, it is reg it's relatively similar to the uh, jay that you'll find in and uh, sort of more southern European countries. It's sort of more grayish uh, and sort of this sort of the colors are more sort of autumn sort of light colors and similar sized and um but the reason why it was so important and exciting to me was because when I was growing up again um the, the we had we had in Portugal the first field guide um that was translated into Portuguese. Right. I mean, traditionally, it's always been uh, in other languages. In Portuguese, it wasn't very common. And they did it for the first time. I was maybe uh, about 10 years old or so. And, of course, it was bird. It was a bird field guide. Right. Mm. And, of course, it wasn't a, 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 a book specific for the birds of Portugal. It was simply a birds of Europe book translated into Portuguese. Right. Which meant that there were a lot of species in the book that didn't occur in Portugal, you know, particularly because Portugal is so south compared to the rest of the, co the continent. And so one of the things I always thought was, you know, really um, sort of mysterious were those species of birds that you only had in the very sort of northern parts of Scandinavia and Russia and, and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, because, of course, those are the furthest points away from Portugal in the continent, in the European continent, right? So I always – that th those species, you know, and, and I remember lo looking through the distribution maps of the species and they, they always seem so exotic and so, you know, uh, you know out of reach. 
uh, that I was, you know, as I was flick, as I was flicking through the book, I always thought that was quite sort of an exciting. Um, those are quite exciting things, and so then. And the Siberian J, Siberian J, of course, was one of those. You know, this distribution is quite north, and you know, there's there's just no way that anyone in Southern Europe is ever going to see a bird that bird. But you know, two weeks ago, as it just so happened that I was in Lapland, I did manage to see that bird, and so you know, that was that was quite a special moment, and it did it did bring back a lot of memories to me. Sort of, uh, you know, going through that that book, uh, you know, 20 years ago, pretty much, um, and and sort of in thinking how. Uh, how something that was so exotic and abstract, in fact, I uh, uh, was ended up being something I was uh, I was able to see, and 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 just a, a couple of decades later on. So that was that was quite special. Oh, very nice, beautifully told. Um, so I want so I've just got a few a few kind of more quick fire questions sure. left to round off with, um, and the first of those is about communication, and I was wondering if you could mm-hmm. just say a little bit about. Um, the IFLB Twitter account. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, right. So so that is uh, that's a a a, a page. Um, so it stands for African Love Biodiversity, and um, it was a page that uh, I started um, maybe seven or eight years ago. Um, and it currently I co-run with with my wife uh, Laura Cunier, um, and uh, and she. she these days, she does most of the heavy lifting, to be to be honest. Um, and so it, it is really just about uh, sharing news, positive news about, uh, about about nature conservation. And it's just a, um, I mean, to be completely honest, it was the surfing off the back of the incredible success that African Life Science had, mm-hmm. um, and we're thinking, why not? Why not just have something for biodiversity? Um, and so we had, we were really lucky. We got. Um, support from a couple of designers to do our logo and to set up a page nicely and so now we have um we have a, a, fa- a facebook account but also also a twitter account also a google plus account and so every day we'll have one post every day about something f- fun about biodiversity and interesting and exciting and mysterious and something that i think sort of showcases why we think um you know biodiversity is such an interesting thing to read about nice Okay, um, so this comes back to a question which we we sort of covered a little bit earlier, but um, mm-hmm. y- you've obviously got a number of different projects on which I, mm-hmm. which I identify with, um, and you've also been acknowledged with a number of different awards. So you're clearly quite busy. I was wondering if you could <laughs> say whether or not you've got a any particular time management techniques, or b coming back to something we touched on earlier, any particular system for filtering the offers or possibilities that come your way. And deciding whether or not to say yes or no to them. Mm, mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. So I'll do it as, as a two-part answer again. So in terms of time management, um, it is something that I'm increasingly aware of. Yes. So um, I have the distinct advantage of working and doing professionally, doing being employed, doing something that I love. Which means that I can easily do a ten-hour ten-hour day uh, without without batting an eye because I, because I just like to do this sort of work. But at the same time, it's also clear that just physiologically, that's that's not a good strategy. That's not something I can do forever because I know they will make me less productive and less able to do things you know well. Um, and so I, I there's sort of this tension, uh, right? Um, and so I've become more and more um, careful with um, keeping um, 
having some tools that help me keep things, keep tabs on how, how things are moving. So there's this one app that I really like called Asana, which is basically just sort of a fancy to-do list that allows you to organize the things you need to do by when. It tells you what's delayed. At the beginning of each day, it sends me an email in the morning. It says, right, so these are the things that are delayed. These are the things you're supposed to be doing today. These are the things that are upcoming the next few days. Um, it, it, it sort of really gives me sort of more mind space, not to have to worry about, oh, right, what is the deadline? What, what's happening today? What? No, it just Asana just tells me what's going on. So that, that's, quite, that's been quite helpful um, in terms of time management and just my just generally keeping things going. Uh, I'm starting to use Slack as well, um, yeah. which is something that I, I've become fond of simply because I find that it compartmentalizes um, uh, information much better than email does uh, and it's easier to search than email is so I, I've also started doing that I, I, do, I do find it helps me out so that's 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 for one and the other thing is to be honest which is I, I know it's not a very sort of very, very sort of exciting answer I guess but the other thing that I do is I I do find that having a routine keeps me much more productive so you know, I, I tend to be quite disciplined in terms of, you know, when I wake up in the morning, when I go to bed, when, you know, just those types of things. I tend to be, because I do find that having that routine enables me to be that much more productive. Um, and so those those are the, you know, those are the types of things um, in terms of just my time management. In terms of projects, um, you're right that I, I increasingly, it's increasingly been difficult to choose what, 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 and what to invest, I guess, my time in. Um, I guess I tend to go with much more applied research and less with more academic projects. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it sort of, I guess, depends a little bit. But but it is it is a challenge. It is a huge a huge challenge. I, I used to have a mentor. Um, um, Professor Paul Ferraro is today is at Johns Hopkins University, and uh, and he has a, a post-it on his uh, computer screen that just says, "Just say no." Um, um, yeah. And so, so that's 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 I think something that I take I take to heart, and and, and it is it is it is a challenge, you know, to, because of course everything's exciting and everything is interesting and everything is, um, you know, I, I guess it's a little bit the curse of working in something that you like is that it makes it that much more complicated to say. Oh no! Actually, I don't want to dedicate my time to this. I want to dedicate time to that because, of course, you want to do everything, um, but just not enough time uh, in the day um, to to get that done. So it's 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 so I guess I guess I guess it's a very long wind sort of way of saying that I I, I don't think I have yet reached a a place where I have a really good system for that. I I sort of wing it a little bit and uh, and uh, and and try to try to make sure that. Uh, you know, there's going to be for sure some time loss because there's always risk, and anything that's exciting and interesting and novel has risk attached to it. Um, but I try to sort of manage that as best as best as I can. That's fantastic. That's one of the best and most comprehensive answers to that question I think I've had so far. <laughs> We're glad to hear that. Good. Um, are there any particular mistakes or failures that were actually that actually set you up for success later on, or were particularly important learning points? Hmm. Yeah, so I think 
I think I think actually I, I I think I think yes I do think I have an example of that. So I think um, I, sometimes and I think early on in when when I was doing for example my masters or or even my PhD sometimes I, I had this I had this tension or, or tendency to to think oh I should have done an undergraduate degree that had much more social science um, because you know it is really where it's at and I really you know often. The reality is that during my master's and my uh, PhD, I had to catch up on all this other sort of theory and sort of background that I didn't have because my undergraduate was mm-hmm. focused on natural sciences. And so I saw that a little bit as a limitation. But but the, the one thing I realized as well, um, and so I guess it was sort of a mistake that set me up for at least higher probability of success, is that my undergraduate natural sciences enables me to have a common sort of lexicon, like vocabulary, with other researchers, other conservationists, who the most part of them come from natural sciences. If I didn't have that common sort of vocabulary and sort of understanding of how natural scientists sort of go about thinking of these issues, like conservation issues, I think it would actually be more difficult for me to engage and to be part of a lot of the conversations that I'm part of. So I, I do I, I do think that was a, you know a, a mistake that I made of sort a sort of mistake that I made that later on actually turned out to be pretty useful. Um, I'm not sure if I would do it again, you know, if, 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 if I was to start all over how I would do it, but I do find that there's value, value in having that common understanding and that sort of common language um, that enables me to sort of, um, you know, be fluent with, I guess, you know, people that come from a, a variety of different academic fields. Mm, very nice. Okay. Um, are there any books that you particularly often give as a gift or recommend to other people, conservation or not? Uh, excellent question. Um, hmm. So, yes, the, definitely there are. I'm a big fan of books in general. Um, okay, so let's take sort of, I guess I'll give you a sort of two-part answer. Uh, the first one is um, okay, so uh, uh, um, from a more sort of more sort of technical sort of side, I guess. Um, there are a couple of books I think are pretty interesting. One I do like, um, uh, it's pretty pretty well known, but I think it's an interesting sort of read. Is Nudge, um, Richard Thaler and, and and Cass Sunstein. It's a pretty interesting sort of read around behavioral economics and uh, how people behave and. Um, in, in sort of different situations, how we can influence that that decision making. So I think that's a book I often recommend. I guess from a more on the more sort of technical side. Um, on the less technical side, and I just want to check the title to make sure that I do it um, correctly. One book that I quite like, and 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 that you know it's sort of a um, 
<laughs> the um, the more sort of uh, full-on version of Lost and Found, I guess, a little bit, is uh, called The Curse of the Labrador, of the Labrador Duck. Um, and it's basically a, a story of someone who decided that... Uh, so Labrador Duck, as a, as a parenthesis, is an extinct species of duck, um, right? So it lived mm-hmm. in around the region of Labrador in North America. That's why it's called Labrador Duck. And um, it's, it's been extinct for... Um, over a hundred years now, uh, and um, and there was someone who decided that they would they would see they would they would visit every single specimen of this species that was still in existence, right? Um, and I thought I thought that was I think that's an interesting um, it's an interesting quest. Uh, and I think I, I think it, 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 I think it sort of showcases very clearly this sort of um, uh, what's the way, best way to put it? Um, sort of the dedication and tenacity, I guess, that a lot of people exhibit in conservation. And this sort of shines through with the lost and found stories as well, right? So, you know, a lot of these uh, of, of these explorers and scientists and researchers and uh, naturalists that are the, the the main actors or the, the they have the key roles in this in these in these in these stories are people who went against the odds again and again and again and again to try to find these species. And of course, you know, it's important not not to to forget that right now, after the fact, we do know the the species were there, but you know, they had no evidence often that species still existed, right? Um, and so it was just a you know just a pure sort of gut feeling, this sort of. Uh, 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 you know this this sort of love of of finding out what what's out there um, that really drove them to incredible lengths um, to uh, to 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 get this uh, to get this to get the answer to the question I guess and and this sort of this book is a little bit around along the same lines of, of someone just exhibits this really um, uh, this, this 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 incredible um, drive right to uh, to get to know. This species, even if this species, in this case, is a it's a species that is already extinct. Hmm. Nice. Okay. Finally, um, uh-huh. if you could put a quote from someone else or from yourself on a billboard for thousands or millions of people to read, what would it be? Um. <laughs> um. You know, there is one quote that I quite like, uh, and I hope I'm not misrepresenting it, but it goes something like, uh, only those who risk going too far can ever know how far one can go. Uh, and uh, I, 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 the reason I like that is because uh, it, 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 it sort of plays to this idea that, um, you know, I think we, we need to be constantly sort of pushing boundaries and reinventing ourselves and doing things differently um so i think in in in, when it comes to biodiversity conservation um you know the easy thing is to document declines and that's the easy thing to do to measure things as they disappear uh it's valuable but it's easy um the difficult thing is to influence uh trends and how things are the 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 actual threats that are impacting biodiversity and and i think that that is not a small change That, that that's a very big sort of um, there's a very big challenge, um, and so, so for us to be able to even have a, any hope, you know, not not be successful, have any hope of being successful, it does mean pushing the boundaries. It does mean reinventing ourselves. It does mean um, getting out of our comfort zones and doing things um, that we maybe perhaps don't even 
naturally associate with being a conservationist. And I think sometimes we think a conservationist is sort of like this person who goes out into the forest and, and, and counts monkeys. But maybe that's not what a conservationist is. Maybe it's something a little bit different. Maybe it's a you know a, a marketing executive or a, a lawyer or a, you know sort of a you know a sort of very different I guess type type of a profile that we than we traditionally uh, would associate a conservationist with. And and I guess that that's what that quote sort of quote sort of to me entails this this need for us to uh, to uh, to go beyond uh, I guess what we uh, what we would expect conservationists to do in order to to uh, to ensure that we get the job done. Very nice. Okay. Unless there's anything that you want to add or that you thought I'd ask about that I haven't. Mm, no, no, I don't think so. Um, I, I don't think so. I, um, I, I guess I'll just finish by saying, you know, it's, it's been a real pleasure to to uh, have this conversation with you. Um, and to uh, yeah, thank thank you very much for uh, for having me. That's it's been really great to to, to have this opportunity. Yeah, no, thank you so much. That was what a great conversation. That was amazing. <laughs> I really hope you enjoyed that conversation, and you can find more of them at wildvoicesproject.org on Twitter at wildvoicesproj or by subscribing to the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much and until next time.